this is a special bonus episode of Halfway There. Uh, I am here with author and podcaster Jeremy Myers. Jeremy, hey, welcome to this bonus edition of Halfway There. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. I should say, well, welcome back. Yeah, because you were a guest. Uh, it's been a while now, maybe over a year, I think. You know, I looked it up just this morning, right before we got on, and it was March of last year. So it's not. It's been almost a year. Mm-hmm. Almost, yeah. And what I remember about your story is was so interesting. Um, and friends, you can go back and look at that. So go back in the archives, halfway there, podcast.com, and you can find it or just find it in your um, podcatcher. But uh, was it you? What I remember about your story is that you kind of started asking some questions and lost fellowship with a bunch of people who didn't like those questions. And uh, it, one of the quotes that I, I, pulled out of that was why are my neighbors being more like Jesus to me than these church people? Yeah, that is sort of a summary of the story. I started, did start, I was uh, attending a very evangelical seminary at the time, conservative evangelical and worked for a nonprofit organization where a lot of the graduates and supporters and customers and members of the organization were from this same seminary. And uh, yeah, I started asking some questions about, you know, seven-day creationism and, and prophecy in the Old Testament, if it really points to Jesus and, uh, the, you know, whether hell was really eternal conscious torment, those sorts of questions that challenges the average Christian, <laughs> conservative Christian. <laughs> and so, yeah, the people, the, the questions were threatening. And uh, yeah, so I lost, uh, I lost some friends just, just because I was asking questions and reading books that were not in the approved section. So, uh, <laughs> and, right. and yeah, then, then I lost my job. And, you know, lots of people go through these crises in, in life. And in that time, for whatever reason, I did lose a lot of my Christian friends. And then the non-Christian friends came around me and supported me, provided food and helped me find work. And uh, yeah, it led to some very troubling questions about the church and what we're supposed to be doing with each other and for each other. Yeah, and, absolutely. Rest is history. Absolutely. So, friends, if you want to hear that again, go back in the archives. You can hear Jeremy's story. Uh, but we're just going to catch up. So we're going to have a, a sort of informal conversation about what we've been doing in the last year. And uh, we're going to let you in on the conversation. So uh, you've been writing. <laughs> yes, a lot. You're a prolific writer. I admire that a lot. Like, how often do you write? You write every day. Every single day. Okay. Yeah. My goal is to, my, my personal goal is a thousand words a day. I don't always hit that. Uh, sometimes I do get more than that. So I, I would say that I probably average about 5,000 words a week. And, you know, the book, um, an average book is around, I don't know, 40,000, 50,000 words, something like that. So if I keep that 5,000 word a week pace, I can write a book in about 10 weeks. Yeah. So of course, then there's the editing and proofreading and typesetting and cover design, all those processes too. But I usually have one of those going behind the scenes always anyway. So, uh, do yeah. Blog, do you blog them? Do you like put, put that out? Yeah. So people say I'm prolific, but really I'm not. <clears throat> I'm doing one thing at a time. And then I blog what I write and I podcast what I write. Mm. So it's really just repurposing. It's doing one one piece of content and then repurposing it into various ways. Yeah, so you're smart. Yeah. So like the book on faith, you mentioned, that's my most recent one. Um, I didn't, I didn't blog and podcast everything in the book, 
but uh, probably maybe about one third of it. And um, it also is a summary of it is in one of my online courses that I teach. So anyway, yeah, that's one of the keys there. People, people think, oh, he's got a blog, he's got a podcast, he's writing books, he's teaching courses. Yeah, but they're all the same thing. Right. Yep. Right. Which, yeah, the reality is that's how these online people do it. Mm-hmm. Everybody does that. Right. Because- well, and then too, I've been blessed with, lots of people don't know this, but I've been blessed with a job where I can do writing at work. Mm, okay. I mean, in, in my free time, obviously I have lots of responsibilities and things I have to do. But once I get done with all of that, uh, then the time is mine to do what I want with it. And so I do, I do a lot of my writing there. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, so that makes sense. So you have a little more time to do it. You're not taken away from family time. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would never recommend that, especially if you have young kids or home and you're married. Don't, don't let writing get in. I, I did that for many years, <laughs> letting my writing and reading get in the way of family. And that's uh, not a recommended way to go. Yes, the voice of experience. <laughs> <laughs> so. I've been there too. Yeah, I get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. Okay. Wow. Sometimes I will get up early in the morning, though. Last week, recently, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older or it's a stressful time of life or what, but recently I've been having trouble sleeping. So last week, there was a day there where I got up at, I woke up at 3.30 in the morning, tried to fall back to sleep, and I just couldn't. So I got up at 4, 4.30 or so, and I wrote for a couple hours before going to work. Yeah. So, you know, that's what you hear some authors doing that as well, getting up early so that they don't take a time, time away from their wife and kids and, and fitting in the writing then. And, uh, you know, if you're going to write and you need to write and you want to write, then sometimes those are the decisions you have to make somehow. Yeah, you figure out how to do it. Yep. Figure it out. And that's interesting. So do you write things that are just burning in you? Like you go, I have to talk about this because there's an issue out there and I just have to like, somebody's got to address this. And so that's why you do it. Yes, always. Mm. Uh, In fact, um, well, maybe it's not so much an issue out there. (laughs) <laughs> that people are dealing with, but it's an issue in me. Um, and I don't know, that's maybe not the best way to write. I listen to a lot of writing podcasts and things like that too on my commute to work. And there's this theory out there now where if you want to make a living as a writer, you're supposed to write to market. Uh, there's a book out there called Write to Market, I think. And so you figure out what people are reading, what people are buying, what people want, and then you write that book. I can't do that because I need to feel passionate and excited about what I write, or I just get too bored writing it. Right. And so I, I write about what is on my heart, what I'm interested in right now. And, you know, I do try to write it in a way that I think other people will find interesting or helpful, or I package it or arrange it in a way that will be helpful to them. Um, but uh, yeah, so, um, you know, whatever, whatever. And then also, because I, I do work in a religious setting at work, then I do take some of this stuff around and I, I teach it there in, in, I mean, I preach. And then uh, I'm a chaplain in a prison, in case your readers didn't, or listeners didn't know that. Uh, and so then I, I have Bible studies and things like that there as well. So, uh, you know, it's field tested. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's how I do it. It's whatever I am burdened with right now that usually gets my attention for my writing. I think that makes sense. So do you know, this is going to seem like it comes from out left field, but do you know what you are on the Enneagram? Have you messed with that? I I think I took that years and years ago, but I cannot remember. Yeah, okay. I'm a four, so that means one that I'm very moody. That's what Uh. 
but it also means that I can't do anything if I don't care about it. Yeah. You know, you have to, I have to be emotionally connected to it before I'm like, yeah, okay, let's do it. So you and I are probably similar that way then. Cause I, I'm pretty I also. Uh, and yeah, if I, if I don't care about something, I, I won't do it. Yeah. Me oh, interesting. I need to, I need to refresh on that and see where I'm at. Oh, there are so many good things. Um, so I, I interviewed Suzanne Stabile, who wrote a book with Ian Cron, I think is how you say it, uh, about the road path, road, is it road back to you? And then she wrote one called The Path Between Us, which is about Enneagram and relationships. So we talked about that. Hmm. Um, it's probably it, helpful to know what you are and your spouse is, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, <laughs> well, I'll give you an example. So one, one insight that uh, we're starting to have, so I'm a four, so I'm very, like, you know, like I said, gotta gotta love it in order to do it. Um, I don't. I take criticism very personally. I'm not very clinical. I'm just like you know. Uh, my wife is a six, and so she's very um, the the sort of marker of sixes is they're they're kind of afraid or they're they got a lot of fear. Uh, they want a lot of security. Um, that's not everything. They're also very brave, right? Because they have to constantly mm. step out of their comfort zone and they think about every all the possibilities. So one of the ways that manifests is worst case scenario, right? So they go to the worst case scenario and then they go back to the, at least my wife does, back to the, okay, well, what will probably happen? Hmm. For years, I tried to like talk her out of the worst case scenario. And now I'm learning, oh, no, no, don't do that because that just makes everything worse. Yeah, let her go there <laughs> and then come back. And, huh. uh, you know, uh, maybe 20 years ago would have been nice to know. but <laughs> Right. But uh, it, it has been helpful. Maybe my wife and I should look into that too. We're just now, right, 20 years into marriage, starting to discover how different we really are. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. How to work with each other, because that's the key, isn't it? Yeah. You can't force them to become more like you and, or, or vice versa. You need to figure out who the other person is and work with them, uh, love them in, in those differences. So right, something like this would be helpful, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I we've enjoyed it a lot. We've had a lot of value in, in just figuring that out. And then also there's this uh so it's just just the way you work, you know, those kind of things are helpful too. Mhm. Mhm. Yep. Interesting. Cool. Yep. So what's uh, up with you? I don't think I was listening to some of the podcasts last time and you were telling me I was just refreshing myself on what we'd talked about in the story and you had hinted several things about your story and your acting career you were going to chase down one of these days or back in the past or something ended up at seminary instead and yep and um i don't know if i'd ever heard that story yeah you teased it but then you didn't say anything more about it maybe i didn't ask i don't know um yeah so i wanted to be an actor in high school i don't think i was a very good actor because what i'm thinking and feeling is always written all over my face yeah uh, so that's kind of hard um <laughs> But I loved it. And so that was really when I figured out, oh, I like I love this artistic expression. I like to do things like that. Um so what happened though is around about so you know, when you graduate high school and you're trying to figure out what am I gonna do? I was gonna go to school that had an okay drama program. Um, and I just felt like I'm maybe I'm not really good enough at that. Um, not partly because and I've I've been thinking about this a lot lately. My house, my, my parents, God bless them, but they're of a generation that uh, you didn't try to do something artistic because mm. you always had to have that thing to fall back on, right? 
So you really should have something practical. You need to get a job and stay there. My dad literally just retired from uh, his job that he's had for 45 years. Hmm. He started there when he was 17. Wow. So that's kind of the culture. Yep. Um, and my mom was had different jobs, um, but mostly she just was in her field and did her thing. So the idea that being an artist was possible wasn't even considered, even though it's what I knew I wanted to do. So at one point, I made a decision to change where I was going to go and be a pastor instead, uh, thinking, because I do care about people, and I, I did have some, a lot of empathy, um, which was a really interesting journey, like just a, you know, a long time. And um, I recently found my, my old journal from 2002, and I was looking through it, and in there, I had said um, at one point, I think maybe God has for me a non-traditional ministry, mm. not a church ministry. But then I spent the next 15 years trying to get into a traditional ministry <laughs> <laughs> unsuccessfully. So, yeah. uh, so then part of what's happened with me in the last, let's say, three or four years is rediscovering that the creative in me yeah. that uh, I actually really do love to just, and writing isn't necessarily it. I prefer conversations like this, mm-hmm. um, which is why I started podcasting. But um, it is, it is writing. It is creating things. I started writing, um, some Bible studies myself, uh, that I put out a couple of those in the last uh, month. Yeah. I saw those on your website. Yeah. They're, um, day experience and yeah, I have two of them. So one's called Jesus is willing. And that's about Mark one 40 to 45. Hmm. Jesus has this inner little, it's a small little interaction with a leper, but there's so much in there. So sure. I pull that out. And then the other one is, um, on the wedding at Cana. And I kind of lead people through, I, I, so here's, here's, I'd love to talk to you about this because you're, you're a smart theological mind. I think that in that passage, there's so much about experience of Jesus and how our faith is built on experience of him. So I think even, um, I disagree with D.A. Carson, which I'm always hesitant to do, but uh, he, he says, for instance, that, oh, Mary's insistence that Jesus do something is just based on you know, faith or on her knowledge or something. Huh. I'm like, no way. If you, if you listen, she, first of all, why does she come to him? I mean, what's she expect him to do? Run to Seven Eleven and pick up a box of wine? I don't think yeah. so. Uh, what, um, second of all, what she says, he kind of says some things that was sound to us sort of disrespectful, but wasn't necessarily sort of affectionate. And her response to that isn't, hey, don't talk to me that way. Yeah. Her response is, do whatever he tells you to do because he's going to, because she can see the look on his face. Right. She knows what he's going to do. And so I think that she says that to the servants because she has had experience with Jesus providing in hard situations. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether that was miraculous, I'm guessing that there probably was without acknowledging. So Carson's problem is he, he doesn't want to acknowledge the Gnostic gospels, you know, the Thomas. And the oh, right. All those other where Jesus is doing miracles as, as a child or whatever. Uh, I don't think we have to acknowledge that with, with, without. I don't think we have to acknowledge that in order to th- suggest that Jesus probably had some experience doing miracles because he does it so effortlessly. Yeah, you don't. Uh, I think he had to learn that. Yeah, and Mary knew this, and Mary knew this. Yeah, yeah. That's hmm. my. So the whole thing is all about taking people and going. All right, let's look at what God's done in your life. Let's look at, let's make a list and let's look at the experiences that your faith is actually based on. 
And then uh, we look at even the hard ones. Sometimes they're hard ones where we wonder where God was and we show up, where did he show up? And so we talk about maybe he wants to repurpose those, you know, like carpenters are, if you watch YouTube, watch carpenters make some amazing things out of pallets, right? Wood that was discarded. And he yep. takes the jars and he repurposes them. They were for this sort of yoke of, you know, hand washing and he repurposes them for something really joyful. Yeah. Anyway, that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to do. And that's beautiful because that is what God does. Right. In our lives. And I mean, he, he's a redeemer. He, he takes our painful, difficult, trying situations, the, the, the times in our life when we're crying out, God, where are you? What's going on? How come I can't hear you, feel you, see you, see what you're doing? He takes those when we, when we feel like he's abandoned us and he takes those and he does, he turns them around and he, um, now, I, I'm not saying that he sent those bad things, you know, that, that he caused them in our life, because um, we need to be careful about that. But he, he does, he can use them and redeem them and bring good from them. And that's when, you know, the beauty from ashes, we really see God at work in our lives, right? Bringing restoration and healing and hope. And so that's beautiful that you're able to walk people through that. That's fantastic. Because what, what an important thing to see and understand. Right. And I think, so, our, our, but our faith is based on that. And so right. like, I've, I've kind of come back to, I never learned this because I went to very evangelical bordering on Calvinist schools um, that about Wesley's quadrilateral, quadrilateral. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, but experience is one of the things that he included in there. And I, yeah. and when I realized that I was, oh, I'm not as crazy as I think I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like it, it feels kind of weird to, put some authority on experience, but it actually, I'm not the first one to think it. And I think it's, it is true. Yeah. You're in good company there. Absolutely. <laughs> well, maybe it depends on what you think of Wesley, but yeah. <laughs> well, I prefer him over, um, I prefer him over Whitfield. Yeah. I, you know, my, my uh, church history is probably lacking in that area. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. I need to study those guys a little better. Uh, so good. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I'm doing. So I'm trying to, uh, you know, I'm enjoying the podcast. I've got a lot of people lined up. Um, I, you know, I've been to a couple of conferences where I've been able to book a bunch of people. So oh, that's fantastic. Got uh, like people. Christian author conferences or what? You know, there's a conference called New Media Summit that I'm actually going to be at this coming week. A guy named Steve Olsher runs that. And um, he has... Uh, I'll have to talk to you if you're interested in in it because um, it would be worth worth going if you wanted to promote some stuff. But basically, he lets you come. He says if you're a coach, an author, or something like that, uh, come and you can give a two minute pitch to 40 podcasters who he calls icons of influence. I get to be one of the icons of influence, mm. and um, he says uh, so. They get up there and they give a two minute pitch or less about why, what they can bring to your show. And then he does it kind of the voice style. So you have chairs and you kind of turn around and uh, if you want to book them. And so that's kind of fun. Hmm. Long day, there's 150 people. So you do that for three days, <laughs> two minutes at a time. Um, but it is a lot of fun and you meet so many people. And here's the thing that surprised me. Uh, I was, I don't think Steve is a, is a believer at all in, in Jesus the way we are. Um, but I was surprised at how many people were believers there. So there were, there were a bunch of Christians. And so as long as I was clear about what my criteria were to be on my show, yeah. those people kind of found me and then we connected. 
Um, so I ended up having, I did 10 interviews in three days. Wow. <laughs> Which was crazy. Um, so stuff like that, you know, it's been really kind of fun. And I'm mm -hmm. going again next week. I can't wait. It's in Tampa. So Denver, I think is going to be kind of cold. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be happy to be down there. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I can't remember it, this uh, podcasting, what you do isn't a full-time job for you, is it? Well, so in May, I actually quit my job to try to do this full time. Really? Yeah, which was a little crazy. And to be honest, I'm kind of at the end of my leash coming up here in the next couple mm -hmm. of months. So I'm trying to figure out what that means. Um, but I was at a place where I just thought, like I was at a financial firm and that artistic side of me, like that sort of, the cubicle life is sort of death to Negro and force. And it was, I just felt like every day I would go in and I was dying inside. Yeah. And so um, that sounds dramatic, but it's really not. It's just, it's, that's how I felt. So I had to get out of there. And so I, I knew that this road that I'm on goes up at a 2% incline every year. And that's it. And uh, even if I do well, I'm getting 2%. And the mountain I want to be on is over there. So I got to go off road and try, try to blaze a new trail. Hmm. Um, and there, you know, I, mountains are up there, up and down. It looks like you're straight up, but they're up and down. And they're switchbacks on the way. Mm -hmm. uh, I just knew I was on the right path and needed to change it. Wow. Well, I'd be curious to know more about that as well. <clears throat> Cause you're not, I mean, how are you monetizing your, your podcast? Yeah. So my idea was I've, from the very beginning, I wanted to sell my own products. Right. So okay. I like what you do because you sell your books on your website, right? And yeah, books. mostly through Amazon. Okay. Um, but so I want to do things like that. So the, the eight day experiences is what mm -hmm. I was trying to do. It took me a few months to kind of even figure out what I wanted to do with that. Um, and anyway, so that's what I'm, that's my goal. So I'm trying to create some of those kind of things. Um, hmm. You know, I have maybe some advertising starting to come in. We'll see. Yeah. So things like that. Well, good. Yeah. It's tough, isn't it? It's tough. Okay. Here's the thing I didn't know. Um, maybe I'd heard, but I didn't realize entrepreneurs cobble together an income. They don't get a, get one paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> so all streams. Yes. And so I do have a couple of things. I'm going to do a mastermind group with a friend who's a spiritual director mm -hmm. for spiritual directors, because there's very little out there about the business of soul care. Yeah. That you actually be sustainable. So we're going to talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, well, good. I hope it works out for you. I'm nowhere near self-sufficient. Yeah. So, and maybe I would, it would put a more fire under me if I did quit my job, but I'm not sure I recommend it. <laughs> I'm not going to. No, I, I just, I've talked about it with my wife a lot. I do understand that uh, feeling of your soul shriveling up a little bit every time you, you go to work. Mine is a little bit different than your position was, you know, at least I'm in a sort of a religious setting. Right. Although sometimes I feel like that's worse. Um, I, I, I often feel a bit hypocritical at work because of what I do. But, um, but yeah, that, that, that experience of dying a little, so, a little bit every time you pull into the parking lot. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, yeah, my, we, my wife and I have talked an awful lot about me quitting and, and trying to do writing and podcasting and other things full time. But I don't know. I just don't have it in me to do that. So, yeah. Um, and maybe not right now. Well, and maybe not right now. Maybe yeah. there, there's... There's a time for everything. I just had been there for 13 years and, and uh, I was like, I, this is over. <laughs> I yep, need this to be yep, done. Yep. But yeah. Hmm. 
Well, good. And you sort of started a podcast community to help other podcasters learn to podcast? Yeah. Well, so it's kind of, we have a broad range of people in there. So my real goal is to connect Christian podcasters. So it's okay if you if you don't know anything about podcasting, but you're a believer and you feel like you're being called to this, you've got a message that you need to get out, you're welcome because you can learn about how to do it and you can ask your questions in a safe place from people who've already navigated those waters. Um, but also, uh, you know, for veteran podcasters who just need connection, it can be lonely podcasting in your basement or yeah. wherever, you know. Um, I just wanted to connect us. And so we've seen some cool things. Like uh, there's there's two people. I do these masterminds every once in a while. And we had these two people in the group who um, one one was saying, hey, I, I just can't. Like I've got so many episodes just on the hard drive that I can't even get edited because I just don't like doing that. And it's not, they're not going anywhere. And <laughs> somebody else in the group is an editor and he goes, I'll do it for free. Wow. And so he, he has been serving her and they've been getting these little episodes out. Awesome. Right. So there's connections like that where people help each other. I see people cross over and do get guest posts all the time or mm-hmm. interviewing each other, um, which is great. And then I find guests on there. There's some amazing people. There's a guy in there named Mike Savage. I interviewed him recently. I was on his show. Dude did 15 years in, in prison for being a criminal mastermind, they called him. Hmm. And uh, and his wife stayed with him. And he says to me at one point, uh, I didn't understand the grace of God and, until I understood it through my wife. Hmm. Well, right? like, so there's some cool people that you find. There's that experience too. It, totally. Totally. Oh, man. Can I tell you a story? I yeah, tell you. of course. So here's the thing about, this is why I don't think experience can be written off as easily as we'd like to think. Um, I had a gentleman on the show, great guy. He's a Lutheran pastor. Um, but when I started to ask him about experience and about like whether or not God can speak to us and things like that, cause he'd said something. And so I, I pursued it a little bit. And uh, in order to prove his point that he didn't believe that God uh, did that anymore. He told me his time about when he thought God had spoken to him and it didn't turn out to work out. So he told me an experience story. <laughs> not, a, not a Bible verse. Right. Not a, not a, even a theolo- piece of theology. It was an experience that he had that made him go, oh, okay, well then God must not do that. I said, well, maybe, but maybe you just need to wait. Right? Did, you, did you point that out to him? No, I didn't think of it until afterwards. <laughs> when I was editing, it was like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. He used an experience to teach, right? That's that's a really interesting point. Yeah. So kind of matters. Anyway, huh. I want to talk about your new book, the uh, What is Faith, right? Oh, okay. So because you were nice enough to send me a copy, but tell me what this, why did you write it? Yeah. So I feel like a lot of Christians, we know we're supposed to believe. Obviously, faith is very important for us as Christians. But what I've discovered and learned through my discipleship group and and my work at the prison and just in having conversations with lots of people is although we know we're supposed to believe, lots of people aren't sure if they really do believe. Right. You know, or, you know, how can I know if I've really believed? I get that question a lot. You know, I know I'm supposed to believe in Jesus for eternal life, or I know I'm supposed to believe that God exists, but I look at the world and I see all the problems. And if God was really there, don't you think he'd be doing something? So I'm not sure I really do believe in God, or I'm not, you know, I, 
I hear you, I hear Jesus in the gospel say, if you believe in me, you have everlasting life, but how do I know if I believed in Jesus? And so they struggle with this question of whether or not they've really believed. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's what the book is about. It's trying to explain what faith is, and then ultimately how to know that you believe, um, that you really do believe. And, and so that's, that's the ultimate goal of the book. And, you know, lots of, and the reason for the people have this view, this fear, this worry, this doubt, is because there are lots of teachers and, and authors and pastors out there who, you know, and God bless them, I, 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 I consider some of them friends, and I've read their books, and I enjoy them, but they teach things like, you know, you need to watch out for false faith, or spurious faith, or temporary faith, you hear that sometimes. Or um, one thing I hear a lot is is the faith of demons. Well, even the demons believe, you know, that sort of a thing for out of James chapter two. Right. As if it's not good enough. Right? Yes, right. Because you're just like a demon. What? <laughs> right. And so people say, well, how do I know I don't have this false faith or this demon faith or this, you know, how do I know if I believed enough? Or, you know, and then even the teachings of Jesus about great faith and little faith in the gospels confuse people. And you know, I, I don't want to have little faith. I want to have the great faith, the faith of a mustard seed that moves mountains. And, you know, so there's all of these questions and concerns and even fears about faith. And I try to address most of them uh, in the book. Um, and, and so that's what the book is about. Yeah, interesting. All right. So how did you define faith? Yes. Yeah, so this is where it gets a little controversial a little bit, because I've read books like... Um, the Sin of Certainty by Peter Enns. I don't know if you've read that book. Okay. And then also Greg Boyd has written a book called, I think it's called Seeing is Believing. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. Or, or maybe, maybe it was one of his other books or maybe it was a sermon. Do you know how things get jumbled up in your mind where you heard what? Yep. And both of them argue, and look, th- those two guys, their their brains, like you, you don't want to disagree with D.A. Carson. <laughs> Who am I to disagree with Peter Enns or especially, you know, Greg Boyd, right? Uh, but both of them sort of say that we cannot be certain about our faith, that we cannot um, really be certain about anything. And I get what they're saying. We need to have humility. We need to have grace. We need to recognize that we don't know everything. Um, and so we could be wrong. In fact, we are wrong. You and I are both wrong in a lot of what we believe. We just don't know it. Right. Right. I mean, right. if we knew where we were wrong, we would change our beliefs. Right. Uh, and so humility, I mean, just the fact that we've changed our beliefs over time shows right. that we have been wrong in the past and we are certainly wrong about things we believe right now. Right. So, you know, I get what they're saying. We need to be careful. We can't come out as, as you know, the, Bible thumping, you know, people, Christians, pastors who are demanding, you have to be certain about seven day creationism and all those sorts of things. So I get what they're saying. And, and Greg even talks about Greg Boyd even talks about this analogy of faith. He has this uh, picture or illustration of faith as faith like a, a house of cards. And this is true. Lots of people sort of view faith this way, where they've built this house of cards up with all their beliefs and then if one in the middle or the bottom gets pulled out, the whole thing comes tumbling down. And that's what happens to a lot of people. They build this house of cards up. They go to church when they're kids. They, you know, go to Sunday school. They read the Bible stories. And then someone comes along and points out, well, are you really sure that Methuselah lived to be 969 years old? Are you, can you, I, I just have trouble believing that. 
oh no, an error in the Bible. Can I really believe that? So they pull it out and the whole house comes tumbling down. And that's just ridiculous. Yeah. That your whole faith can fall, can collapse just because you stop believing or one little thing or you change one little belief. Right. And so he points out, and I agree with him on this, that we can't have a faith that way because it's not, it's not realistic in our world, in our society. Totally. Yeah. And, and so he argues that we can't be certain that doubt is part of faith. Anyway, I go the opposite way. And I, I say that faith is certainty. Really, I sort of I qualify it a little bit. I qualify it as reasonable certainty. So there is that little qualification in there. It's reasonable certainty. Um, but I do say it is certainty. Where I disagree with Greg and Peter and, and Pete Enns and, and so on is um, uh, this house of cards analogy. I don't think we have an all or nothing faith. Right. That's what I try to point out in the book. Uh, we don't have a house of cards faith. Um, what the, the illustration I use that I prefer is sort of more like an Excel spreadsheet. You with your financial background probably worked with Excel spreadsheets a lot. So I was a little worried about it because if people have never worked with Excel spreadsheets, they probably have no clue what I'm talking about. So I try to explain it in the book. But what I say is, you know, in an Excel spreadsheet, you get all of these, these equations and numbers and data figures, and each little bit goes, goes in its own cell. And depending on how all those cells are connected, if you change one cell, it can have a cascading effect through the rest of the spreadsheet, or at least through large segments of it, right? You change one and a bunch of cells change. And so that's sort of how I think about faith. Not everything changes uh, when you change a certain belief, but lots of things will change. And the whole thing doesn't collapse together you know, fail, it's just, it changed. And that's fine. So I I try to bring out that illustration in the book that that's sort of how faith works. It is a giant network of beliefs, sort of like the website, all inter the internet, all connected and tied together and linked together. Um, But uh, and the adventure of, of, of following Jesus, the adventure of Christianity is seeking out and discovering those cells that are wrong, (laughs) And changing them, and then going along for the roller coaster ride of watching what changes as a result of that afterwards. Right. Oh, wow. So I got I have two things that I think are interesting. Number one, I love that analogy because it sort of is a cascading. I think you use that word, cascading. Like Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's just a, you know, it kind of ripples out. There's, it's not that we have to tear the whole thing down i think that's been the way it's approached been approaching apologetics right, right. For a long time as well if you don't believe all of this the same but here's the thing then you have a situation I mean, your story is a great one where if you don't believe that or you start to ask some questions um you've you got you have some problems right then then that person is not as spiritually mature as you were as you thought and so this is my second thing i've come to this conviction that uh, the at least the evangelical church in America, we've misdefined what spiritual maturity is like or what Christ-likeness mm. is. Mm. And we've defined it unwittingly, perhaps, as how much we know and how much we do. Yep. And that's where we have that, okay, you know, like, because I'll have people, I mean, you probably have heard this too, like, people are like, oh, uh, you know, I didn't go to seminary, so you tell me right, what this means, right? 
why? Like, tell me what it means to you. Like, tell me where, what are you, you, what's God saying to you through this passage of scripture? Yeah. Uh, but that feels too subjective. Um, I but, might be wrong because I went to seminary. Right. right. <laughs> that happens. Yep, for sure. So there's some interesting things there, but as if because I have all this knowledge now, I'm I'm more Christ-like and I'm more qualified. Yeah, well, I might have a broader context, but and I might have spent more time thinking about it. But that doesn't mean I'm right. Yep. And I think that's that's uh, or more more spiritually mature, which I think is how it gets treated anyway. I don't know. What do you think about that? Is, no. is that do you think that's right? Do you think we've defined spiritual maturity that way? Yeah, you are absolutely right. That is how the church in general has defined spiritual maturity, and it is absolutely wrong. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, you just look about it. Now, I guess it depends on the church. This is probably you're going to find this more in like Bible churches um, and certain denominations. But in some churches, the emphasis is really on you got to come and hear the pastor teach you from the word, and then you need to be spending you know, half an hour, 40 minutes every day in the Word, studying the Bible, and then you have to be attending at least one Bible study every week. You know, so those sorts of churches that really emphasize those, you know, sort of academic teaching style of um, approaches to Christianity, those ones are probably the ones that tend to emphasize this knowledge Um well, I, th- I think what happens is even unwittingly in most evangelical churches, they do it because the centerpiece of the, of the service is the sermon. Mm. Yeah, no, that's true. And right. So the, I, think, I think you're sort of, they're sort of building that in. And then they're also at the same time, you know, they're trying to get people in to hear the sermon or come to the events and th- that they're planning for you without necessarily regard to what you need. And then uh, trying to get people to volunteer within that. And so it becomes this little engine, conversion, learning, and doing that keeps the churches running. You're right. You're right. Even in the non-Bible churches type churches, they they gear their entire service towards, okay, what music do we need to build the emotions to a certain way to prepare the people for when the pastor stands up and starts talking? Which is Wesley again. Yeah. That's his influence still. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, and, and I think that that approach causes us to miss out so much in life on what Jesus actually wants for us. Um, right. And I'm not sure I'm ready to go to like a, a more, a higher church or an Episcopal kind of route just yet. Yeah. But the idea of having a communion, I've thought for a long time that having, having that, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, every week was probably a good idea uh, because that becomes the centerpiece at the end instead of, instead of the sermon. But yeah. Uh, anyway, that's kind of where I'm wrestling. Yeah. Well, um, my wife and I have often talked about this. We have had, I mean, it, all, it goes back really to how people define church. And I think you and I talked about that some in our previous discussion last year about what church is and isn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not, Church is not that brick building with the steeple on the corner of Elm and Main Street uh, that people sit in Sunday mornings for an hour and a half. Church can happen there, um, but that's not itself church. So anyway, and we talked about that. So your listeners can go back and listen to that conversation. At least I remember talking about it, I hope. Okay. And and so um, as soon as we get away from that, though, then we realize that church we're the church, people of God, uh, you know, Christians, disciples, followers of Jesus are the church. And so, so we can be the church 
wherever we are and whatever we're doing. And my wife and I, Wendy and I have often felt like we have experienced, here's that experience idea again. We have experienced Jesus. We have experienced the church in some of the most surprising ways, uh, you know, having a conversation with our neighbor over the fence mm-hmm. and just listening to some of what he's dealing with. He's the one I'm, I'm thinking of, his name is Leroy, and he is illiterate. Uh, uh, you know, it's so rare nowadays, but he, he can't read. He doesn't know how. He is like Jesus, I'll tell you what. Mm-hmm. And here's a guy who, 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 he can't read the Bible. He doesn't know how. Wow. <laughs> I mean, just think about that for a second. And oh, and by the way, uh, his wife has got some ailments, and so they can't go to church either. He doesn't want to leave her home, but she can't leave the home. Yeah. So here's a guy, he doesn't read the Bible, he doesn't attend church, he doesn't go to Bible studies, but he is the most Christ-like, servant-minded, loving, generous, Jesus-loving follower of Jesus I've ever met in my entire life. And he knows next to nothing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, he has he he does have the Bible on audio CD. So he listens to that. Sure. But that sort of proves my point, right? So if our yeah. definition, and I th- I think this goes back to faith too, if our definition of what spiritual maturity is is how much you know and how much you do, then you'll get one result. But if it's how much you love like Jesus, yeah. you respect entirely different people. That's right. And I think that's fantastic. So yeah. how do we deal with that then? Because you say at one point, faith is mental assent. Mm-hmm. You clarify that. So how do we, because there, there is maybe a, a belief component of that. Beliefs are important. How do, we, how do we reconcile those two things? This idea about Christian life being a life of love? Yeah. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I mean, that is a belief. So we are, you and I are discussing this, and hopefully your listeners are being challenged in what they believe about what the Christian life is. I mean, that's what we're talking about. What is the Christian life? And so we're talking about a particular belief. And so beliefs do change our behavior. And so if a person is believing that the Christian life is defined by how much we know and, and what we do, you know, we have a checklist of things we have to do, then that is what, how, how their life will, will be lived. Uh, but if they change their belief on this network of, of beliefs they have, that that is not the Christian life. The Christian life is defined, characterized by love, loving one another tangibly, then that is going to change the way they start interacting with their neighbors and the, the lady at the checkout counter at the grocery store and or coworkers and friends and family members. And I mean, it, it, it will take a while. Change often is slow. But um, I think that that change in belief, that understanding of what Christian, the Christian life really looks like, uh, it will have an effect down the road in how we actually start to live and love and follow Jesus. Amen. Yeah. I'm kind of on a but mission. It, it takes people like you to, to start spreading this truth, this idea about the Christian life and what it looks like. Yeah, I'm kind of on that mission. I want to say, I want people to redefine what it means to actually be a mature believer and to look for those things. Um, and who knows? I don't know how, what form that's going to take, but that's yeah. kind of where I am anyway. Yeah, I'm excited to be a tiny part in that journey with you. I'm yeah. excited to see where you go <clears throat> and how this works out for you. Yeah. So are there, 
do you address at all like specific beliefs that people that we kind of have to have or how do well, you some yeah um because it's not unimportant i guess i want to be sure to say that right there it is there are some things that are sort of basic oh for sure yeah and other people have talked about sort of a hierarchy of beliefs or someone was telling me recently about this sort of bullseye where the ones in the center, maybe that came from Greg Boyd too. I can't remember where, where you hear things from. For all I know, it was you. <laughs> uh, you know, just at the center, you do have these core beliefs that are sort of required or essential for Christianity. One of them, of course, would be the existence of God. I mean, if you don't even believe that God exists, I mean, you're an atheist then, right. or an agnostic. I mean, you're not a Christian. So that one's going to be in there. And then, of course, you definitely have to believe some fairly central things about Jesus, that he existed, uh, who he was, uh, you know, God in the flesh. I think that that's pretty important for Christianity. Uh, you're going to have to believe a few things about who he, you know, what he did. Yep. The crucifixion, at least, crucifixion and resurrection, I would say, uh, that's got to be in there. And then uh, as far as eternal life and being born again into the family of God, I would also put in there this, this central gospel belief of, um, you know, believing in Jesus for eternal life. We're not believing in Buddha. We're not believing in our own good works. We're not um, believing in whatever, our parents' faith. We ourselves are believing in Jesus that he alone gives us eternal life. So, and that's a fairly, you know, basic truth to the gospel. So I would put those in the center and then, you know, they start working out from there as becoming, I wouldn't say less and less essential the further out you go. Um, but that is sort of the case. I mean, this idea that Methuselah lived to be 969 years old, right. believe it or not, I don't care. I do believe it, but if someone doesn't, I'm not gonna say, oh, well then you don't believe the Bible. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Oh, you can't be a Christian. That's, I mean, come on. Yeah. Well. Uh, the reality is they might have measured time differently. I don't know. Yeah, maybe so. There's all kinds of ways that that could be <laughs> yeah. true, but not true in the way that we, uh, we evaluate it. Yeah. That's and okay. then somewhere between those two, the existence yeah. of God and Methuselah, you might have things like seven-day creationism. Right. Uh, again, for me, well, I won't say what I believe on that. Uh, people can listen to my podcast. I do talk. It's how I started my one verse podcast was working my way through Genesis one, two, three, and four. Um, but, uh, I don't think I was taught. I went to a Christian school, uh, K through 12. And I remember very clearly being taught Ken Ham answers in Genesis, all those people. If you don't believe in seven day creationism, you are not a Christian. I don't know if they ever come out and say it quite that bluntly, but that's definitely the impression. You know, the whole Bible unravels and falls apart and the value, dignity of human life and all this other things that are important to Christianity. Um, you know, even the sinlessness of Jesus, all of that falls apart if you don't believe in seven-day creationism and the fall of humanity and what happened there in the Garden of Eden and all of that. If you, if you think that's myth, well, and the rest of it's myth too. And Look, <laughs> that's ridiculous also. Um, so, you know, believe it or not, believe seven day creationism or not. And, um, it, it's, it's not a salvific doctrine, I wouldn't say. Yeah. Well, see, I think this goes back to, again, another belief in what we think the Bible's for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if we think the Bible is, is to tell us everything, uh, you know, 
in a factual manner in a scientific way like what like where we are now um then you know and with logic and all the kinds of things that we try to apply to it okay well then we're gonna have to believe one thing about that in order to trust the bible right if you believe the bible is there to reveal god and his heart for humanity mm-hmm. uh create a, a non-literal yom mm-hmm. seven yoms seven days that's the hebrew word for there right um is that seminary coming out yeah, that's right it's just <laughs> it's uh it's okay if it's you know well if it took a long time and yeah. I don't care how God did it. I don't know what those, it, it's okay. I, what I know is that God created right. and I can trust him and praise him for creation because of that. So absolutely. That's the truth, isn't it? That's the central idea. Yeah. And that's the, that's what matters. Yep. But we're, we sort of are living in a time when uh, and it's, it's so weird. Oh, I'm going to go off. All right. We're, we're living in a time when uh, we are in the shadow of Christianity's response to Darwinism and the whole scientific movement in the 19th century uh, that we're still trying to answer those questions, but they're a hundred years ago or better. Nobody's asking those questions. They're asking different kinds of questions and that's going to require a different kind of approach to reach these people that, uh, you know, millennials want authenticity. They don't want people to show up with all the answers. They want you to show up and say, I don't know, man, here's what I know. I know who Jesus is and I experienced him. Here's how. Mm-hmm. That's what they want. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I was just teaching my 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 Bible study group at the prisons, talking about Bible studies. Um, this idea that just what you just said, when Moses or whoever wrote Genesis one, two, and three, that this theory of evolution didn't exist. Right. <laughs> it's not right. they were they weren't asking. Hey, there's this idea out there that the uh, the the universe evolved over millions and billions of years. What do you say about that, Moses? Or what what's God's view on that? It wasn't even a view. They they didn't think that. So we can't say that these chapters were written to disprove evolution. They weren't, and that wasn't even a question that the original author or the original audience or the redactor or again whatever your view is on that. It's not even a question they was on their radar right they had other questions right exactly they were trying to reveal something else about god yep in comparison to the cultures in which they found themselves exactly and so that we have to understand that and i get that we can use it to sure who god is in the comparison to the culture of how here but i just don't think it's the most important thing that it's right but anyway that's me no no good glad you were up on that yeah interesting Man, um, I had something else I was gonna I was gonna ask you, but it has flitted away. Mm. Uh, one thing, I go, go, going back to the, sort of this idea of faith, it just hit me. Have you ever heard this illustration? And maybe some of your, I, I think I talk about, I do talk about this in the book. This uh, wheelbarrow, man in the wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls illustration for faith. Have you ever heard that? No, like going across the wire or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The tightrope walker. I hear this one preached about a lot, and I've. <clears throat> just sort of what we're talking about a little bit um, in regards to faith. This, the idea is, the story goes, and this is a fictional story, I'm certain of it, I think. There's a tightrope walker. He sets up this tightrope across Niagara Falls, gathers a crowd. Who wants to see me walk across Niagara Falls? Oh, me, me, me. So he gets up on the tightrope and, and walks across and back Niagara Falls. And they're cheering and clapping and everything. He goes, all right, now who believes I can do it pushing a wheelbarrow? Oh, me, I want to see that. I want to see that. So he gets a wheelbarrow up there. 
pushes the wheelbarrow across, pushes it back, cheering, roaring, you know, oh, that's awesome. He says, all right, now who believes I can do it with someone in the wheelbarrow? Oh, I do, I do. I believe you can do it. That'll be awesome. I want to see this. All right, so who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> and all the hands go down. Right. Right? And this illustration is used in Christian circles sometimes, saying if you aren't willing to get into the wheelbarrow, you can raise your hand and say, oh, I believe you can push someone across Niagara Falls in a wheelbarrow. But if you don't get in the wheelbarrow, you don't really believe. So you see how this illustration works and that it causes people to wonder if they really believe. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Really? Well, have you gotten into the wheelbarrow? <laughs> well, <laughs> and people are like, I don't know. Have I? And it's, it's a shame-based con- uh, exactly. illustration, right? Uh-huh. That's one of the things that, you know, if we believe Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those right. who embrace Jesus. We cannot preach a gospel of no condemnation with shame. Beautiful. And if you do, then you don't get it yet. Right. If There's- God doesn't condemn us. Yeah. Right. <laughs> How can, how can we condemn each other? How can we condemn ourselves? Yep. That for me was one of the, there's a question later on in Romans 8 where he says something like that. And it's, it's like he leaves it sort of an open-ended rhetorical question. If God doesn't condemn us, who can condemn? Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to go through and go, oh, nobody, not even me, right? And that's such an important truth for Christians to learn too. I think sometimes we beat ourselves up so much. You know, we teach and write and <clears throat> hear about forgiveness. A lot of times we haven't forgiven ourselves for some of the things we've done. Yeah. And um, so such an important, and, and that's an experience too, isn't it? When we learn to forgive ourselves, that, that, that feeling, that sense of that burden being lifted and that guilt and shame washing away is one of the most liberating experiences, feelings that a Christian can have, I think, as far as our, you know, our, our sense of sin and our feelings about our past are concerned. So many people are burdened down with guilt and shame over what they've done in the past. And God wants to liberate them and free them from that, um, set them free. Amen. And that's what the faith is about. Yeah. 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 Believing that God, God has forgiven you. And so therefore you can forgive yourself. Right. Yeah. And forgive other people. It helps with our relationships. Forgiveness helps a little bit with relationships. It helps with everything. Yeah. <laughs> Forgiveness helps with everything. All right. We might call this that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, it's like that verse. Um, let's see. Someone just sent me an email about this yesterday because they heard something I was talking about how God doesn't hold our sins against. It's just like you and I were talking about. <clears throat> and he sent me the verse about you know, if you, if you don't forgive others their sins, God won't forgive you for yours. And he said, like, well, what does this mean? And I think it's this concept of what we were talking about. Um, there's a whole longer explanation, which I won't get into here now. Uh, th- there's two forms of forgiveness in the Bible, and so you sort of have to be careful what form is being talked about in any passage that talks about forgiveness, because they mean different things. But um, it's this idea that uh, God has forgiven us, but if we don't accept that forgiveness, then we're not going to experience the forgiveness. It's that sort of idea here and and in other various places. You know, if we don't believe that God can forgive us or we don't believe his forgiveness applies to me, oh, well, you don't know what I've done. No, I don't, but God does. 
<laughs> and he forgave you. So, right. you know, um, now we, we also on this, we need to, you know, I work at a prison. We, <clears throat> we do need to understand that there are consequences for decisions. Right. And so forgiveness doesn't erase those consequences. You know, um, yeah, they, they, you may still have to suffer those. You may, you might, you know. you might. right. Prison but, is a good, is a pretty good example. Exactly. God has forgiven every person in that prison for what they've done. Um, but that doesn't mean that they get a get out of jail free card. Uh, even though a lot of them would like that and are praying for that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, some of them have probably probably do deserve that, or at least they've worked a place in their life, they still have, you know, multiple life sentences or something, and they would be fine on uh, on the outside. But a decision or a series of decisions they made in the past has placed them where they're at. And, and that's just the way it is now. So anyway, um, yeah, another, another thing to just think about with forgiveness, but, and yeah. I think sometimes people get confused about that. Well, if I've been forgiven, how come I'm still experiencing the pain in my marriage or the, you know, uh, God forgives me. And my spouse says, you know, she forgives me and, and I'm trying to forgive myself. So why, why can't, why can't my marriage be fixed? Well, the decisions have consequences. So um, anyway, another thing that, that, you know, along that whole, whole line of thought. Yeah. So what I'm thinking is that there's a, this is one of those things that cascades, right? Exactly. So once you understand, you know, so going back to Romans 8, that was one for me um, that sort of cascaded when I started to understand the no condemnation. Like, what does this actually mean? And it started to change some things. And I'm still seeing the effects of that as I, as I dig into things like the atonement. We talked about that last time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What does this actually mean about how God feels about me and what Jesus did uh, or how I should understand it? Um, it does matter. You know, it'll, it'll change what you think about people. It'll change about what you think about yourself. Um, I get one of my pet peeves is when I hear Christians say, oh, I don't know why God loves me. Right. Mm -hmm. Or, You'll hear that sometimes in church. I, I will, or I'll hear somebody pray that, Lord, we don't deserve your love, or we don't, deserve, whatever. It's not about that. It's not about deserving it. Nobody said anything about deserve. Yeah. It just is. It's a fact that you need to accept. And and it, I can tell you why God loves you because He made you, and you're made in the image of God, and He, he thinks you're pretty cool, right? Like, yeah. that's it. There's nothing else that you can't earn that because He already gave it gave it to you. Uh, so stop saying it. <laughs> yeah. That for me was a real turning point in my life too. This is this understanding of the the love of God. No matter what, He's going to love me. Period. And you know, a lot of times in the past, but when I would sin or you know I had a habit that I kept falling into over and over again or whatever, and you know, so my Christian upbringing was that. After that happens, I need to beat myself up and whip myself mentally and emotionally and, oh, God, I'm sorry, and cry and all these sorts of things. And, you know, I was told that's re what repentance is, and you're not going to get free from this unless you experience that shame and that guilt and even some healthy fear in there that, oh, maybe I'm headed for hell now. Maybe God, you know, kicked me out of his family. And, and but when, when you come to understand the love of God, he's not there holding a stick over your head saying, oh, how could you have done this again? He's just loving you and saying, hey, I saw what you did there. It's okay. It hurt you. And that's why I don't want you to do that. But it doesn't hurt God. It's, I mean, not, not you know, he, he's not literally damaged when we sin. He hurts because 
he saw that what we did hurts us. And right. he's just there to pick us up, heal us, words of comfort and encouragement. And, and there might be some discipline. Yes, Lord disciplines those he loves. Okay. But right. and those come through the consequences of our actions. Well, that whole idea helps people break free from those areas of sin in our life that we struggle with this idea that I am loved by God, no matter what, that's what, you know, grace gives us uh, the freedom from sin, not the shame and the guilt and the fear and, and that emotional roller coaster that often comes afterwards. Yes. I love that. I was thinking, so I'm reading Jeremiah this year. Mm. So uh, I take it very slow. I read Mark all of last year. So I, I kind of go back over okay. and over things. And what I'm fascinated by so far is uh, my eight or nine chapters in, uh, but he, it's like, God's heart for the Israelites. I mean, he's talking about, he's going to wipe them out, right? But if you read for his heart, you'll find he's heartbroken over this. It's not just that he's going to destroy them because they disobeyed. He is going to do that. But that's the consequence of their sin. And he is heartbroken. He's like, I give you, I gave you everything. I, like, I was really good to you. You know, I did all this stuff. Like, I don't understand. Why would you do this to me? That yeah. kind of a question, that kind of a heart rather than a, than like, I'm just going to destroy you because I'm God and I can. Like, it's not, that's not what happens there. And so if you read, and again, I think this goes back to what we think scripture is for, but if you read for God's heart, it's beautiful. Yeah. So beautiful. Oh, for sure. That's great. Yeah, it is. Jeremy, I think we could talk forever. And I really, really, I enjoyed (laughs) conversations. I enjoyed being a little theological, a lot practical and, uh, just, uh, you know, having a good, it reminds me of the old seminary days when we have this kind of sit around. Yeah. Table. Sitting around tables late at night talking. Yes. Yeah, yeah. boy, I just checked my clock. We have, we've been on here for about an hour. It seemed like about 20 minutes. It didn't seem like very long. And I, like I said, I could be more, but, uh, so I'll wrap up it. Friends, you can, um, check this out. Uh, you can get, I'll put show notes. We talked about a bunch of books and I'll link to Jeremy's stuff. I have right there, podcast.com as well. Uh, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for uh, doing a doing a bonus episode with me, Jeremy. Yeah, I need to get you on my podcast. Let's do it. I love that. Absolutely.